Low Burn Media and Bill Huffman present this week's episode of Who Killed the Yogurt Shop 4, Part 4. Okay, at 11.47, one of our patrol officers called in to dispatch smoke coming out from, I can't believe it's yogurt. Fire department got here shortly thereafter. What we found in the back there was we found four victims. We're handling it as a homicide right now because it appears that one of the victims was struck in the head. Were the victims together or were they in different parts of the building? No, I can't. I can't give you that either. Were they bound in any way? Can't give you that. Was there any sign of forced entry to the building? Can't give you that. What can you give? Just what I gave you. It's still very early in the investigation, okay? Give us the information that will lead to the arrest and conviction of the person that murdered these girls, and we will give you $100,000 for that information. I don't ever think any man's gonna come into a yogurt place and shoot you. I mean, I want them to look me in the eye, and I want them to tell me why they did that. Their, their day's gonna come. If I don't get to see it, they're gonna have their, their day of facing someone. The good thing is, I think there's people out there that can help us. I think, you know, we are still interviewing people. We still get tips on this case. Austin police have chased down over 700 leads. Tonight, for the first time, they've named three men they want to question in the murders. Early this morning, the Austin Police Department served four arrest warrants charging four individuals with capital murder. Now, you've been uh, living here in Charleston for quite some time. Uh, what have you been doing? Uh, working. Living my life. Two of the four arrested were Michael James Scott, age 26, from Utah, Texas, Robert Burns Springsteen, age 26, from Charleston, West Virginia. There's a new development this morning in one of Austin's most notorious unsolved murders, the 1991 yogurt shop murders. Jennifer and Sarah Harbison, Eliza Thomas, and Amy Ayers, all killed inside a frozen yogurt shop on Anderson Lane in North Austin. Four men were arrested, two of them were convicted, and years later, their convictions were overturned. It would not be prudent to risk a trial until we know the nature of the involvement of this unknown male. We are discovering the man killed was Maurice Pierce. He was one of the original suspects in Austin's notorious 1991 yogurt shop murders, but he was never convicted. It's wonderful, and I'd like to thank God and my families and my attorney for this opportunity. Thank you. He was one of four suspects in the case. He's now seeking a judge to declare he is innocent. They may have taken the lives of four girls, but they've ruined the lives of a lot of people. It was very exciting to have something to pursue. We knew there was still a long road to getting to a resolution, but to have a lead at all was really good news. A ruling in his favor would make Springsteen eligible for at least $700,000 for the time he served in prison. I feel like every time we think we've made a little bit of headway, we take steps backwards. A fight between the FBI and local investigators in one of Austin's most infamous unsolved cases and whether the feds have information that could finally unlock the nearly 30-year-old yogurt shop murder mystery. A person leaked to the profile may have hundreds or thousands of male family members. We thought, surely you, you can't mean this. You can't mean you could tell us something about this DNA and you will not share it with us.
Hello and welcome to episode 58 of Who Killed, a slow burn media production. I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this podcast takes a look into cases you have heard of and others that you may have not. My goal is to provide a voice for the voiceless. This week, I'll be wrapping up my four-part series about who killed the Yogurt Shop 4. Thanks again to Nick for joining me for the previous two episodes. I know he is extremely busy with his multiple shows, and it really does mean a lot when he takes the time to come on the show. As I mentioned, I will be concluding the Yogurt Shop series this week, but with the story back in the news, I'm going to leave the door ajar for a real true conclusion. This is a very convoluted case, especially after 28 years. So I want to give you guys a little bit of a recap before we get going today. Eliza Thomas and Jennifer Harbison, both 17, were working at the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt Shop. This was the early 90s, so jobs like this would provide independence and income to maintain basically their cars and their lifestyle. Eliza played a significant role in helping Jennifer get the job, and Jennifer's 15-year-old sister came by the shop to hang out after exploring the nearby North Cross Mall. Now, Sarah's friend, 13-year-old Amy Ayers, had joined her, and she was going to be sleeping over at Sarah's house, so they were at the shop together. According to reports, all four girls were last seen alive together at around 10 p.m. that night. Uh, Some other reports have said that The last reports were quarter to 11, but nonetheless, uh, for the girls, as well as rookie police officer Troy Gay. It was December 6th, 1991, and he was on patrol when he noticed smoke coming from the, I can't believe it's yogurt shop, in the strip mall in Austin, Texas. He called in the fire, and two departments responded to the blaze, all in an attempt to save the whole strip mall from being engulfed in flames. So firefighters from two departments worked on the scene, pretty much hosing down the entire building and ushering thousands upon thousands of gallons of water within the crime scene, and who knows what kind of evidence was lost during that chaotic scene. But... One of the detectives that was on the scene at the time was Detective Jones, and he was actually doing some work for a local camera crew or a local news station when the first call came in about the fire. And some of the audio is just kind of interesting. I just have a couple of clips to play. So I'm just going to play those clips for you. And this is kind of put you in the seat of a an officer when they first get a call like this and they kind of have to put it together what they are going to be, you know, walking into. And I guarantee you that he had no idea what was behind the actual fire. So here's Detective Jones responding to the initial call on December 6th, 1991. Jonesy? Yeah. Uh, you hear about the call 2900 West Anderson? Yeah, I'm headed over there. No. 2900. Uh, 2900. That's a uh, business. Okay, I'm copying the fire part. You cut out on the first part of that. It's uh, Last 10-4. Where are thought to be just a fire. Thousands of gallons of water were, again, used to extinguish the flames. And, again, who knows how much evidence was actually lost in the putting out of the blaze. But, nonetheless... This was when things took the absolute worst turn. 
In the back of the store were the bodies of four young girls, and we know those young girls to be 17-year-old employees Jennifer Harbison, Eliza Thomas, Sarah Harbison's friend Amy Ayers, who was only 13, as well as Sarah Harbison, who was Jennifer's sister, and she was 15. Three days after the fire, police reported that more than one person was most likely involved in the robbery slash homicide, but they did not find any forced entry. The teens, thought to have been dead before the fire was set, had been extremely burnt and the bodies were nearly unrecognizable. Now, the case did receive a psychological profile of the suspects pretty much within two weeks of the actual perpetration of the crime. I do think that's a little quick, but again, most of these profiles kind of do come from a cut-and-paste sort of thing, so it is one of those, not to put it bluntly, but it is sort of a catch-all. You know, this guy is a a loose cannon or this guy, you know, there's just a lot of things that are going to basically set him apart from your average individual. Anyway, the case basically went cold really fast. And it was those profiles that were put out in 1991 that pretty much left the case where it stood until 1999. Now, I will admit that there were a couple confessions that occurred at the Mexican authorities, but those confessions have all been recanted, and they were apparently tortured to receive those confessions. So another example of law enforcement overstepping their boundaries and trying to pin something on somebody for really no reason other than trying to get a conviction. Not necessarily the most authoritative thing that I would do as far as getting a conviction in a case or trying to get a conviction in a case. As I mentioned, this case went cold pretty quickly. It wasn't until 1999 where we actually did receive some word from authorities about the possible arrest of some new individuals or some tips about some new individuals that could possibly lead to the conclusion of this horrific case that had haunted the city of Austin for, at that point, up to eight years. Now, according to Detective Jones, who I believe it was reassigned at this point in time, that they had done everything they could in the case, but it was when he left the police force that this new unit had come up with the four new suspects, and this was the announcement that they made in 1999. Early this morning, the Austin Police Department, with assistance from other law enforcement agencies, served four arrest warrants charging four individuals with capital murder. Two of the four arrested were Michael James Scott, age 26, from Buda, Texas, Robert Burns Springsteen, age 26, from Charleston, West Virginia. I'll just let that sink in for a second, because that is eight years after the initial investigation had concluded that they were unable to determine who may have committed the crime. The reason why they were able to get these particular individuals arrested was the fact that Michael Scott and Robert Springsteen had both confessed to connection to the murders. Forrest Wellborn and Maurice Pierce were also connected to the case, but again, they never confessed. So the prosecution had a real hard time trying to bring them to trial. And it was really apparent that the prosecution did not have as much evidence as they had really had played on to. And if you think about what kind of conviction they were able to get out of the Springsteen and Scott convictions, it's apparent that they were obviously using 
some sort of means to get the confessions that weren't necessarily on the up and up. In a surprising and tragic twist of events, Maurice Pierce was actually killed by a police officer in a traffic stop gone wrong, where the police officer said that Pierce tried to stab him and that the officer had no choice but to fire his service weapon. And the officer involved, and I'm sure this will come up, the officer involved had no knowledge of uh, Maurice Pierce's involvement with the yogurt shop murders. So this wasn't some sort of revenge type of uh, killing. It just so happens to just be a tragic coincidence and kind of gives you an idea also of what kind of person Maurice Pierce was if he was one to stab a police officer and eventually find himself being shot by another officer. Welcome back, everyone. A former yogurt shop murder suspect shot dead after stabbing a police officer this morning. That officer recovering from a knife wound to his neck. New at noon, we are discovering the man killed was Maurice Pierce. He was one of the original suspects in Austin's notorious 1991 yogurt shop murders, but he was never convicted. Police say that Officer Frank Wilson, a five-and-a-half-year veteran of the force, shot Maurice Pierce dead during a struggle in North Austin after a traffic stop in the 1200-900 block of Henneman Drive around 11 o'clock last night. It was clear by 2003 that this case was turning into a disaster. When the public learned about the civil rights violations committed by the prosecution, I think we can see why the prosecutors didn't want to stir up the case. They were happy to take the two convictions and hope nobody took a closer look. And the impact that this homicide has had on the community is really incalculable. A countless number of lives had been changed and Austin lost much of its innocence as much as they naively thought they had. But again, this was 1991, and we all did live in this world of everything's okay and everything will be okay. We didn't live in a world of coronavirus and the world that we just currently live in, let's just say. So two decades and then some investigations, the city basically is stuck asking the same questions that they were asked on that same December night. You know, who is the animal that made these girls strip, bound them, and then he executed them? Amy Ayers was just an 8th grader. She was 13, and she was sexually assaulted. According to Beverly Lowry in her extensive book, Who Killed These Girls, Austin really had the feel of a small-town police force. They didn't have a forensic unit, and they didn't have a fingerprint unit. But not really many did. And then again, there was only one homicide cop on the street that night, and the homicide division was small to begin with. So the case has seen a lot of twists and turns since the initial discovery of the crime scene. Police have interviewed a number of suspects and at least have collected 50 or more false confessions. Former Austin detective John Jones told Beverly Lowry, quote, as I used to say back in the day, that's a nice confession. Where's the gun? When people or the media question whether or not the police and the investigators could have done more, the former homicide detective says the answer is no. They got whatever they needed. From the chief and from the city manager, they gave us whatever we needed, Jones told Lowry. They wanted it solved as much as anyone else. And no, we did the best with what we could do. Despite the convictions of Scott and Springsteen, the case seemed to continue to frustrate those who were involved. Shoddy police interrogations, questionable evidence, led lawyers of the two men convicted to fight for their release. There was a big problem with the convictions of Robert Springsteen and Michael Scott. 
In May 2006, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals threw out Springsteen's conviction. They said that Scott's written confession was improperly used against Springsteen. Basically, their written confessions were used against one another in the trial, but neither was allowed to face his accuser in court, a clear violation of the Constitution. Then Travis County District Attorney Rosemary Lemberg tried to lock down the case against the two with DNA evidence found on Amy Ayers in 2009. The problem? It wasn't a match for Springsteen, Scott, or even Pierce and Wellborn. The two were released and charges were dropped. On October 28, 2009, Travis County District Attorney Rosemary Lemberg stood and looked bewildered, or a deer in the headlights, in front of a plethora of microphones. This was, after all, her own press conference, one that she had convened to deliver the ultimately disappointing news. Ten years after the city and officials had gathered to announce that they had found the four men responsible for the grisly 1991 yogurt shop murders, Lemberg had been forced to dismiss all charges against the only two men ever tried for the crime, Robert Springsteen and Michael Scott. I'm going to play the clip for you of her breaking the news, and you can tell in her voice that she still feels like she is getting the short end of the stick. Today I presented to Judge Mike Lynch motions to dismiss the cases against Robert Springsteen and Michael Scott, the defendants in the murder of four young teenage girls at the yogurt shop on December 6, 1991. Judge Lynch has signed the orders dismissing those cases. As all of you know, while preparing for trial in March of 2008, we submitted various evidentiary items for YSTR analysis. This is a relatively new method that looks for male DNA only. And that testing revealed the full YSTR profile of one male, whose identity and involvement in this matter was unknown to us. Uh, since that discovery, we have tested samples from many individuals but the identity of this man still remains unknown. At this time, we have two options. Uh, dismiss the case pending further investigation or proceed to trial. In June of this year, we filed the state's first motion for continuance in the case based upon the fact that we could not identify the male donor and we needed more time for testing and investigation. Judge Lynch granted our motion for continuance, but then on August 11th, Judge Lynch issued a written order stating that he would not grant another delay in the case if we again requested more time based upon the same grounds for continuance. Therefore, because the male donor's identity is still not known, we have no choice but to announce that we're not ready to proceed to trial and ask for dismissal of the cases pending further investigation. Make no mistake, this was a difficult decision and one I'd rather not have to make. <clears throat> but I believe it is the best legal and strategic course to take and is definitely the one that leaves us in the best possible posture to ultimately retry both Springsteen and Scott. <clears throat> in the previous trials of Springsteen and Michael Scott, the statements of both defendants were introduced at each trial. The juries were able to see and hear how these two statements fit together, and they related similar facts and details about the murders. The appellate courts found these statements to be voluntarily given, but they reversed the convictions, and we now know when we try the cases again, we will only be able to use the individual statement of the defendant on trial. Given that we also now have unknown DNA evidence in the case, I believe it would be imprudent and, in fact, unfair to proceed to trial at this time. 
It would be unfair to the jury hearing the case, unfair to our community, and most of all, unfair to the victims of these devastating crimes and their families who have endured all these years. While I remain confident that Springsteen and Scott are responsible for these murders, going to trial and risking a result that could forever prohibit us from trials of these men again is a risk that I simply will not take. My office and the Austin Police Department remain committed to these cases, and our investigation will continue. Although she said she still believed Springsteen and Scott were responsible for the crime, she said despite a lack of any physical evidence connecting them to it, she had concluded that she must drop the charges because prosecutors had no explanation for explosive new evidence in 2008. Unknown male DNA found on a vaginal swab collected at the 1991 crime scene from the youngest victim, poor 13-year-old Amy Ayers. And that DNA did not match Springsteen, Scott, nor Maurice Pierce or Forrest Welburn. And as ridiculous as it was, Lemberg stood there in front of the reporters on the day that the charges were dropped and said she and her prosecutors were still adamant the unknown male DNA belonged to someone known to the four men originally charged with the crime. In other words, they were now operating on a fifth man theory of the crime. Another one of those junk science sort of investigative moves. So the DA is not doing any favors for the family who lost loved ones in the yogurt shop murders. Because without closure, the families have been forced to carry the weight of this loss for nearly three decades. Springsteen and Scott still live their lives in legal purgatory. They have been freed, but cold case investigators with the APD still believe that they have something to do with it. They feel this way despite DNA pointing to another person. Springsteen is pushed to have his name cleared by the courts, but since Travis County prosecutors still consider him a suspect, that has been ruled out. Investigators believe DNA will one day match someone providing some answers. With prosecution exploring only one theory and only one set of suspects, a lot of people, including myself, believe that this is holding them back from finding the actual murderers. Beverly Lowry doesn't see this thing coming to a close, or at least not anytime soon. It's one of those odd situations that seems destined not to end, Lowry said. Armed with DNA, Jones told Lowry that he thinks there will be an answer one day, either with advances in technology or just pure luck. Quote, that's why there's no statute of limitations on murder. In her book, Lowry poses the most likely theory. The culprits may have been the two, as of now, unidentified men who witnesses placed in the store just prior to closing time. Then, while testing by Springsteen and Scott's defense attorneys, DNA from a second male, also unknown, was found on an additional piece of clothing from the scene. This would embolden the theory presented in Lowry's book, and it had become nearly impossible to explain away the mounting evidence, suggesting that prosecutors and Austin police had the wrong theory of the crime since the beginning. Not that Lemberg was willing to publicly admit the possibility of that on that fall afternoon in 2009. Lawyers for two of the four men, along with at least one of the crime's original investigators, say they believe that the investigation leading up to the arrests of the four men was just so incredibly flawed that to hold a conviction was unrealistic. 
So let's go back to the scene of the crime. There was a reason that this was always going to be a tough case to process. Because of the fire, it was already contaminated. Water had puddled in the shop, particularly in the rear where the bodies were found, and the high-powered fire hoses had inevitably shifted elements of the scene, possibly the bodies, and this made it really difficult to identify and collect whatever evidence had remained. And as I mentioned, Detective Jones was working the case. He immediately reached out to the FBI and the ATF to see if they could assist in the crime. He also reached out to the Texas Department of Public Safety, which at the time handled the majority of the crime scene investigations for a local police department. Still, Jones says that he approached this murder scene the same way that he had handled every other homicide. He started at the beginning. He and the homicide team initially tasked with investigating the crime did interview customers who'd been at the shop that day, as well as employees and friends of the girls. They did field thousands of tips and talk to the public. It was eight days after the murders when they become aware of Maurice Pierce, and the only reason that they had to deal with him was the fact that, oh, he was carrying a twenty-two caliber handgun, which so happened to be one of the weapons possibly used in the crime, and he also went on to tell the police that he had let his buddy Forrest borrow the gun to commit the actual murders. So, obviously, this was a whole lot of nonsense. And basically, what happened was Pierce was ruled out based on the work of a homicide detective known as Hector Polanco. Now, Nick from True Crime Garage in the previous two episodes had mentioned the Polanco standard. And he had a reputation, basically, for coercing confessions out of innocent suspects. And I really do have a problem with that being something as known as it is. I mean, how many people are behind bars for a crime they didn't commit because of his standard? So the Austin Chronicle did a 25-year retrospective on the case, and they talked about the Polanco standard. And Polanco was basically a character right out of central casting, and he used interrogation techniques that were sometimes successful and sometimes led to false confessions, especially in the yogurt shop case. The thing was, Detective Jones was aware of this, and when Hector Polanco wasn't able to get a story out of Maurice Pierce, it was clear to him that he had nothing to do with the case. And if he couldn't get him to confess, then he was not involved. And then, basically, let's just say this was pretty much the nail in the coffin. Pierce's gun didn't match the ballistics of the crime, and I know that twenty twos are tough to match, but it was still not matched conclusively. And there were some, I don't know, 75 guns tested at that point. So the fact that it was a 22 and 22 bullets generally flatten out, it is a little difficult to get ballistic reports on them, but it is what it is, and you can only work with so much of what you've got. So Melvin Stahl concluded, basically from reviewing the crime scene, that the fire had started in a corner of the shop where the supplies were stored. Now, it was a strategy to bolster the confessions of Springsteen and Scott that, while on first glance read as telling, actually contained no concrete details that corroborated by outside evidence, Jones and the lawyers for the two men say. So no physical evidence connected any of the four men to the scene, not hair, not fingerprint evidence, nothing. So you're basically SOL at this point if you're an investigator. 
So as the cases seem to be running into another dead end, new DNA testing has led families and investigators in Austin to believe an answer may actually come soon. The crime that stunned and horrified Central Texas and the investigation that followed was as high-profiled as it was screwed up. Springsteen was sentenced to death, Scott received life in prison, but over five years, the amount of setbacks that the cases saw and the uh, pain that the families were put through was extraordinary. In 2006 and 2007, courts overturned the guilty verdicts of Springsteen and Scott after the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled in a separate case that two men's statements could not be used against each other because it violated their constitutional right to confront accusers. As I mentioned before, the profile did not match Springsteen, Scott, Pierce, or Wellborn, and the YSTR sample didn't point to their families either. The girls' parents were back to square one with scant evidence except a DNA profile belonging to a mystery person. Prosecutors don't know whether the DNA belongs to the killer, but they believe it might belong to someone who could provide more details about what happened that terrible night. Worried that first responders might have contaminated the scene, they went and tested every person that had been inside the yogurt shop on the day of the fire, and they still came back with no matches. What is intriguing is that male-only YSTR samples, like the one investigators had identified in the yogurt shop case. You know, it was two years ago in March when the first district attorney, Effian de la Fuente, had submitted a subpoena to the University of Central Florida in regards to getting the information regarding the sample. Now, de la Fuente said, we have not lost hope. He has worked on the 1991 yogurt shop murders case longer than any other prosecutor. The investigative team arranged a conference call with the FBI, and their hopes for a clear path forward unfortunately quickly faded. The FBI was apparently not in the mood to share any new information. FBI scientists had to go on to explain that within the YSTR testing, the DNA is unlike traditional DNA, and thousands of men could have the same profile as the one that the detective found. The officials told the team that it would be nearly impossible to use the information to identify a single individual. They realized that they might have to work from a large pool of people, but that the lead was the most significant they had gotten in a decade or more. Quote, these profiles are not suitable for matching to an individual, unquote. In their attempts to use the information, Travis County prosecutors are entering a national debate among law enforcement, scientific, and judicial experts about the growing use of family DNA to try and solve investigations. With the convictions vacated and returned to Travis County prosecutors, who had promised the men would be retried, defense lawyers also had an opportunity to review the case. Garcia separated the crime scene photos into sequences and looking for details that might previously have been missed. And it was when this occurred that the lawyers put testimony and police statements of every witness into separate binders and looked at those statements and how they evolved over time. There was a giant poster board. 48 Hours does a great job covering this case. They have a segment where they actually show the poster board that was used to determine the innocence of these individuals. And 
Basically, sources with knowledge of the case have confirmed a basic account of what the final two customers, a married couple, had told the police had happened on that Friday night in December 1991. And this happened just before 11 p.m. So, according to the police statements, the couple saw two men sitting at a booth and acting strangely by watching the reflections in the plate glass shop front. The women could see the men from where they were sitting. The woman said the pair made them uncomfortable. Sources told the Chronicle. The couple left as the girls began to close up the shop, leaving the two men alone inside with the girls. Now, it appears the defense lawyers that more than one person at the shop might have come into contact with at least one of the men that the couple had seen. Because a former police officer, who in 1991 was running a security company, visited the shop around 10 p.m., he had run into a man wearing a military fatigue-style jacket. The man was loitering in the line of customers and letting customers go in front of him as they purchased their items. So when Croft, this was uh, former Officer Croft, had been asked to go ahead, he said no thanks, and the customer made a purchase of a can of pop and then or soda and apparently went to the back of the store and according to what he asked Eliza Thomas is that she had told him that he was allowed to go and use the restroom. Now, this made the former officer uncomfortable, and so he stuck around to see if the customer ever returned from the back, but he never did. So it was days after the crime, and Croft came forward and gave a really detailed description about the person that he saw, and it was a white male, about six feet tall, mid to late 20s, medium build, dark hair, clean-shaven, and a clear, deep voice, and a long-pointed nose. But he was never able to identify a suspect out of numerous lineups given to him by police. And he was also unable to identify any of the four individuals that were actually convicted or originally thought to be involved. So in two of the photos of the shop's dining room, one table stands out, and that is the booth where the napkin dispenser is empty and there's no chair turned up on the top of the table. Now, every other table in the store is got a chair and the napkin containers are filled. This is apparently the table where these two people were sitting. So as investigators have this unknown male DNA, they're trying to look to see if there is any connection between this DNA and the DNA of the four people originally charged in the crime. Again, they've also said they are looking at other people that may have acted alone, and they are also looking into the possibility that the unknown profile was actually the result of contamination, perhaps by a DNA lab worker or one of the public safety employees at the crime scene. Now, Sergeant Ron Laura, who supervises the APD's cold case squad, wrote in response to a set of questions to the Chronicle about the investigation into Springsteen, Scott, Pierce, and Wellborn, and he said that they, quote, remain suspects and that, quote, investigation remains broadened in scope and focused on getting the DNA identified. It does seem that police are keeping an open mind a little bit on who could have committed these crimes, but man, it may be time to let the Scott and Springsteen cases go because at this point you're just pissing off the families in my opinion and they I mean again the families may believe that these guys did it but 
they falsely confessed, or at least the confessions that they were supposedly given, had been basically fed to them by Hector Polanco. As the cold case unit works to find the actual killers, they were all asked by a reporter from KXAN about who they believed was involved and if the four that were originally charged were a part of the crime and asked the people who thought they were to raise a hand and all five of the investigators raised a hand. So if I'm one of those individuals who has been falsely accused and imprisoned, I would definitely feel a little uneasy, even to this day. So each of the lawyers involved in defending Springsteen and Scott in court has his own theory on how the crime actually happened, as does Detective Jones, former detective. And basically, they believe that two men were likely responsible for what started as a robbery and eventually went sideways. Among the evidentiary details that have been part of the investigation is one of the accounts that was offered by the owner of a party store that was actually next door to the yogurt shop. And he said that he didn't hear anything from the shop except for several popping noises, which the lawyers assume was gunfire. So the fact that the shop was otherwise quiet in a strip mall leads them to believe that this particular perpetrator had a sense of control over the victims, and they don't necessarily believe that the teenagers who were originally brought up on charges could have been those people. So in 2017, veteran Travis County prosecutor Efrain de la Fuente called Bob Ayers, the father of one of four girls brutally murdered at the yogurt shop, and he told them about the DNA that I had mentioned before, about the YSTR. And it was a great day. And this is when you have to ride the roller coaster of a cold case. And that's when elation goes up and quickly turns to disappointment and eventually turns into outrage because the discovery that they hoped could lead them to closure instead triggered a basic the three-year standoff between the local prosecution and the FBI. So this fight is now stretching from Austin all the way to the U.S. Capitol. And it has led to arguments about the interpretation of federal law and privacy protections and to scientific debates about the significance of this new type of DNA, especially since investigators want to use it. So the controversy which investigators recently revealed to the American statesman in Austin has ensnared, quote, the U.S. lawmakers and prompted the possibility of legal action by one law enforcement agency against another. De La Fuente, who has worked on the case, like I said before, longer than any other prosecutor, listened as newly elected Travis County DA Margaret Moore promised to take a new deep dive into the 26, well, now 28-year-old cold case, and the yogurt shop murders highlight how the justice system can rob families of resolutions that they desperately need to move forward. The determination to find answers for the girls' families is what keeps De La Fuente and the rest of the yogurt shop investigative team pushing forward despite the repeated roadblocks. They do have a war room, they do have intense strategy sessions, and they do ponder other ways that this case may be closed. But, like De La Fuente said to the statesman, quote, 
I feel like we have failed them again. Quote, another failure of our system. But we have not lost hope. So the case stands right now where the FBI is kind of uh, stonewalling the Austin authorities into getting any more information in regards to this YSTR DNA that they have found a match to. So if you guys are interested in learning more about the DNA that is used in this particular case, you guys can Google it. It's Y-STR, as well as the murders themselves. It's an intriguing case. And always, always check out Beverly Lowry's book, Who Killed These Girls? It's really an encyclopedia on the case, and it's been a great resource in these four episodes that I have put together for you guys. I just hope that one day we'll be able to say, we know who killed the Yogurt Shop 4. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to the conclusion to my mini-series about who killed the Yogurt Shop 4. Since this case is back in the news, I will certainly be keeping the door open for future episodes. And many thanks to all the listeners who have tuned into my passion case. You guys have helped make the show a success. And I would also be amiss if I didn't thank all of the podcasters and guests who have taken time out of their busy schedules to help build the show into what it has become. As a reminder, I drop new episodes of my Passion Case every Monday and Who Killed every Friday. And that is wherever you get your favorite shows. For the second year in a row, I will be representing Who Killed, Who Killed Amy Mihaljevic, and my Passion Case on Podcast Row at CrimeCon 2020 in Orlando. And that is May 1st through the 3rd. And if you've never been, it really is a bucket list item for any true crime fan. Now, if you want to save money on your ticket, you can use my promo code AMY2020. That is when you check out. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help support the show and independent journalism by clicking on the donate button on the left-hand side of slowburnmedia.com. That is slow minus the W. There's also a link in the show notes. You can also contribute to the show via the Venmo app with my username at bill-huffman-3. Every contribution helps keep these podcasts running. If you do enjoy this podcast, you can also help support the show by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Those five stars help keep the important cases that I cover in the spotlight. And again, if you'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I've covered, as well as the new shows that I have in the pipeline, you can always follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. Thank you guys again so much for listening, and until next time, be safe. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now let's take a listen to Michael Scott's interrogation and see if you can find anything that stands out to you as being a little bit on the shady side. You want the truth, and you know what the truth is. 
You have a trouble with the memory of the flashbacks. You know what happened. You're scared to tell us. I don't blame you. It's a horrible thing what you saw in there. Look, can I tell y'all what I keep seeing in my head? Tell us what you've seen in your head. I keep seeing these girls get shot. Right. Tell us what that looks like. Tell us what you see specifically. How they're getting shot and who's shooting them. Come on, Mike, we can do it again. Tell us. Let's do this today. Let's do it. I'm going to see them down. I'm going to look real screaming, terrified. Okay. I, I don't know if this is real or not, or if this is... Michael, it's real. It's okay. You, you can present it to me anyone you want. It's real. Michael, look at me. You're remembering what happened because you were inside there, right? I don't... You're remembering what happened. I don't honestly remember going in the building. But you were in the building. You were in there with me. I don't believe that, Michael. You don't remember what there. And you know you were in there. Did you shoot any of those girls? No, sir. Then tell us what f***ing happened. What did those two boys do to those girls? You want to live with this the rest of your life? No, I don't. Then get it out right now. They're f***ing you over. They're the ones that shot the girls. Do it. What did you see happen? At some point where he's handing his, that revolver, what does he say to you? Either shoot him or you're next. That's what he said to Because I didn't want to do it. Right. Either shoot him or you're next. What, what do you remember hearing then? I remember looking at this girl. I cry. I hear Robert saying, do it, do it. I hear the gun go off. I only pulled the trigger once. What happened next, Mike? That brought back some memories, didn't it? I remember looking at the gun. You ever seen that gun before? I'm not positive. Does that look like the gun you've seen before? It looks like the gun I've seen before, but I'm not positive. Is that the gun you shot somebody with, Mike? I don't. Is that the gun you walked up behind somebody with and shot in the head? Is that the one? Talk to me, Mike. Yes, sir. You did that, didn't you? Yes, sir. We've just opened some more doors, haven't we, Mike? Not really. You sure? Yes, sir. Now we'll take a listen to Robert Springsteen's interrogation, and you make the decision on whether or not you feel like he's been fed information, or is he actually telling the truth? The problem is, we've got to get rid of all of our options. Our options. I cannot give you any more truth than I've already given. Where do we go from here? Why can't you? Because you're going to dig yourself into that thing? Well, you're already there. You've already dug the hole. The hole's there. Oh, then I'm in it. I, I don't know. That's what I keep telling you guys. I mean, my God, this was seven years ago. But this is one of the most significant things that ever happened in your That's life. That's what I keep trying to explain to you. If I was there and I partook in this, I would remember these things. And you do remember these things. No, I don't. No, I do not. You're the coldest guy I've ever talked to in my life. Are you a cold-blooded murderer? No, sir, I'm not. I, I think you are. I think Maurice is absolutely true about you. Well, then... You're the coldest guy I've ever talked to. to take. Pardon me? Then let's take whatever actions we need to take. If that's what you believe, and that's where you think this case needs to go, then let's go there. We don't want to go there. But I'm doing everything I can and have exceeded my limits of helping you guys. Where do we go now? What did Maurice make you do with that 380? 
24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.